and welcome back to GemCast. I'm Christina Shenby, and I'm super excited because today we have our first EMS provider as a speaker and guest on GemCast. His name is David Silfen, and he's going to be talking about a community intervention to help prevent falls in the elderly. Before we jump in with him, I want to provide some context and epidemiology for the scope of the problem surrounding falls in the elderly. Let's start with some numbers. First of all, about 33% of community-dwelling older adults, that's 65 and over, have a fall each year. Now, these, of course, are only the falls that are reported or that get found out about during surveys, so that could be a lot higher than that. But at least about a third of community-dwelling older adults have a fall each year. 14%, or one in seven of those falls, leads to a fracture. As you get older, that fall risk increases. So about half of patients age or individuals age 80 and over have a fall each year. And 67% of nursing home residents fall each year. When you look at the reasons that people end up in nursing homes, about 40% of the admissions are due to gait instability and falls. So this is a huge problem that leads to loss of independence as well as injuries. Among older adults, falls are the number one cause of fractures, hospital admissions, and loss of independence and injury-related deaths. So, you know, when we think about trauma and death from trauma, we think about high-speed car accidents, things like that. But in the older adult population, falls are the number one cause of mortality from trauma. And most of these falls, they're not falls from a three-story building. These are falls from standing, fall from the ground level. Sometimes about 43% are ground level falls, 14% are stair or step falls, and then 9% are falls from chair or bed or other furniture, and then 11% tripping on a curb or sidewalk. What is causing these falls? Well, it's multifactorial. There are a lot of medical problems that can increase the risk of falls, such as diabetes causing neuropathy, arthritis, arrhythmias, fluid or electrolyte disorders causing dehydration, obviously Parkinson's or other movement disorders, orthostatic instability is a big one, and then any sort of cognitive impairment as well. In addition to the medical risk factors, there are other things like medications or polypharmacy, Decreased mobility and poor balance, which is multifactorial. Sensory deficits, alcohol use, depression, the need for assistive devices, or environmental factors. In fact, there's so many things that go into a fall risk that it's termed a syndrome. If you're not familiar or have never heard the term geriatric syndromes, then let me talk to you about that. Geriatric syndromes are basically... And here I'm going to quote from a JAMA paper, multifactorial health conditions that occur when the accumulated effects of impairments in multiple systems render an older person vulnerable to situational challenges. So what does that mean? Well, basically, there's a lot of different things that cause it. And this is important because it means to intervene, you have to try to fix a lot of different things. Some of the other syndromes are things like frailty, hearing loss, vision loss, delirium, incontinence dehydration, cognitive impairment. So for falls, it may be just a vision issue, which you could fix, but usually it's not just a vision issue. It's a balance issue. It's a medication issue. So intervening can be incredibly challenging. We see these patients come in in the ER and we typically figure out whether they've broken something or have an intracranial hemorrhage and then discharge them or admit them. But there's not a lot that we do in most cases to help prevent the risk of future falls. Some institutions have falls clinics that you can refer people to to get a holistic falls and gait and medication evaluation. Some places have home visit programs, but a lot of places... We just sort of patch up whatever might be broken or sew up a laceration and send people home. 
First, I want to mention a little bit more about the outcomes of falls. TBI is one of the major negative sequelae. If you look at traumatic brain injury in patients over age 64, fall is responsible for 75% of them. So 75% of all traumatic brain injuries are caused by falls in older adults. The remainder are from MVCs, being struck by object, 1% from assault. This is in contrast to the younger population where MVCs are more predominant and falls are less commonly a, a cause. We also know that the mortality associated with a TBI is much greater in older adults. And there's different calculators that you can use to determine or prognosticate on the mortality. Now, just to present an example of a type of case that we might see, if we had a 75-year-old male coming in after a mechanical fall from standing with a GCS of 14, pupils are reactive, no major other injuries, his 14-day mortality is 13% and six-month risk of unfavorable outcome, meaning dead, vegetative, or severe disability on Glasgow outcome scales, is 52%. Then if you do a CT scan, which I highly recommend, if the CT is negative, his 14-day mortality is still 9% with a stone-cold normal CT. If his CT shows hematoma and midline shift, then obviously his 14-day mortality goes up. It goes up to about 36%. And this is based on the MRC crash trial, which I'll put a link to in the show notes. Now, if you contrast that to somebody with the same injury, same features, but who's under 40, that fall with a GCS of 14, his 14-day mortality is 1.3%, and six-month unfavorable outcome risk is about 8%. If he has a negative CT, that risk drops, but even with a positive CT, the 14-day mortality is only 5%. So age is a huge contributor to the risk of, first of all, of falls, second of all, of injury from the falls, and third of all, from adverse outcomes or death related to the falls. Another major factor that contributes to mortality from head injuries in older adults is the use of anticoagulants. Anticoagulants are largely a medication of older adults. Some data from 2007, and this is a little old and before all the NOACs, the new oral anticoagulants, showed that of patients age 18 to 64, less than 1% had purchased an anticoagulant. For patients 65 to 74, it was about 5.6% of all that population had purchased an anticoagulant. And in the over 74 years of age, over 10% had purchased an anticoagulant. And I think those numbers are certainly higher now with Xarelto, Eliquis, and these other medications in addition to Coumadin and Plavix. So the use of anticoagulants is truly a problem of the older adult population and puts them at even greater risk for injuries and mortality from falls. Another huge injury pattern that we see from falls in older adults is hip fractures. Hip fractures actually carry in the patients age 65 plus a one-year mortality of 16%. And this has a lot to do with kind of general loss of function, loss of mobility, and then secondary problems such as pressure sores, infections, etc. But both of these, head injuries, hip fractures, are major contributors to mortality from falls in older adults. And then there's a lot of other things as well, such as you break an arm and now you can't use your cane or walker, you can't get around your house, you're starting to lose your independence. So falls are an enormous problem among older adults, both community dwelling and then especially old, older old adults, meaning over 80, and those in nursing facilities. The scope of the problem is enormous. The impact is huge from hospitalization, loss of function, loss of life, loss of independence, requiring nursing home admission. What could be done to reduce the risk of falls and truly perform an intervention that works? 
I'm joined here today by David Silfen, who's with the Orange County EMS system here in the North Carolina Chapel Hill area. And he and some coworkers started a really neat program that I thought warranted talking about to potentially spread this to other areas. Now, they're still working on finalizing the data to get some hard and fast numbers on the outcomes of the intervention. But we're going to talk today about ways to reduce falls in older adults. So, David, welcome and thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me here. So your program basically targets individuals who are high risk for recurrent falls and performs an intervention with them. So tell me a little bit about your motivation for this and then which patients you select for it. So the motivation originally started because I'm getting older. (laughs) Um, But actually, uh, how the program actually got started was uh, at a Mayday trauma conference here at UNC. There was a, a physical therapist named Tiffany Schubert who was doing a thing on, on falls in the elderly. And the numbers were kind of staggering across the country. And I thought about it while she was talking. She said the biggest problem they have is most of the time, by the time the hospital intervenes, is when somebody's already been injured. Mm-hmm. And she said if only we could find a way to find them before they get injured. And, of course, working out in the field, we realized that that we do a lot of lift assists, Mm -hmm. and we know that once they start falling, they're going to be a repeat customer. Mm -hmm. Let me pause you there, because this was something I had never even thought about. I just didn't know that this was a thing, a lift assist. This is when you guys get called out because a patient maybe hasn't hurt themselves but has fallen and can't get up and needs help getting up from the floor or from their bed or whatever. And is this a common thing that you guys do? Yeah, it's very common. And most of the time it happens in the middle of the night and they have no caregiver around. And a lot of times these folks are laying on the floor. And if they don't have the little push button, they wait till a family member or their next day helper comes in and finds them on the floor. There are folks that seem to ha- it happens to much more often. But, I mean, sometimes it could be literally they can't get off the toilet mm. onto their wheelchair when they're by themselves or they can't transfer from the bed to a wheelchair or they were outside at the market and they can't get out of the car. And mm. so we'll get called for that as well. I had a discussion with Tiffany afterwards, and I had told her that, you know, we go to all these lift assists and we a lot of times find these people before they get injured and we do have some frequent callers. From that, we sat down one day and and discussed how we can make this work. Living in Orange County, it's kind of a unique county. We have a lot of services. There's a tremendous uh, group from the Department on Aging with Mm -hmm. lots of resources. And the problem they have is they can't reach out to everybody. These days, everybody does everything on the internet. Mm -hmm. These people don't use the internet and so it kind of misses the target audience Mm. discussing this with tiffany we realized that we can probably take our folks that fall connect them to the resources they need and then hopefully they won't need us but this way we could kind of keep them in their homes longer without Mm -hmm. having to go to some kind of assisted living and uh so it's slowly but surely working uh we've been working on the project for close to five years so how do you identify patients? Is it people who've called for lift assist more than once? What's so, the criteria? So it can be a lift assist. It can be a fall. It could be a fall with, with or without an injury. But it, our medics are now trained on when they go in, it could be any kind of call that involves somebody over the age of 60. There's three questions on their patient care reports, and we take those from the CDC. And the three questions are, have you fallen? Are you afraid of falling? And do you feel unsteady on your feet? 
And if they answer yes to any of those questions, if the medic remembers to ask them, mm -hmm. they'll say, would you like us to call? We can do a follow-up. If not, it triggers uh, the following month when we go through our patient care reports. At, we'll run a report on whoever clicked yes to any three of those things, and we'll follow up with a phone call to see if we can come in and do a home assessment and a, and a physical assessment. Okay, so let's say you went to Mrs. Jones' house and she had had a fall. She screened positive on that three-question screener. And now you call, offer to come to her house, she agrees. What do you do at her home? So right away you assume that they agree. Well, that's always a hurdle. <laughs> and that actually is one of the hardest parts. Mm. What I do you think are the barriers? They're, they're afraid. They're afraid that um, we're going to come take them out of their house. Mm -hmm. They're afraid their children will find out. Um, mm. And they'll be sent to a home. And just the point that nobody really feels they need help. Mm -hmm. And that the psychological barriers that we run into, is they're tremendous. So I have a background in business and marketing, which I did for 25 years. And a good number to shoot for for a successful salesperson is 10%. And believe it or not, the numbers aren't too far off hmm. trying to get appointments. We've gotten a lot better at making the appointments, by the way. So what have you done? Say if somebody were implementing this in a new county, what have you done that's helped improve the rate of willingness of these individuals to have you into their home? I mean, it is a little scary. If somebody called me up on the phone and said, can I come to your house? I'd say, yeah, um, we're the government. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> Bye-bye. Right. Yeah, um, no, we're the government. And I guess that in itself is a little frightening. But- what we have done through trial and error over these last few years, we find that when females make the phone calls, hmm. our numbers go up. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing was we actually had to create a script. Until you get comfortable asking the questions, you have to explain to them the benefits that they're going to get. And the other thing is you don't give them yes and no questions. Because hmm. if you give them a question, we'd like to come to your house, would that be okay? They'll say no. But... We'd like to come to your house. We're going to be in the area on Tuesday and Thursday of next week. Which one would work better for you? We get into what our explanations are. We also tell them that this is their tax dollars, that it is absolutely free. And a lot of times they don't believe you. Mm -hmm. And then you tell them, well, you're right. It's not free. But you paid for it already because of your tax dollars. Now it's your turn to get your money back. So we went from probably about a 3% success rate the first few months to probably close to about a 25 to 30% where we get in. So if we're making 100 phone calls, we get 25 or 30. But don't forget that there could be 75% of those folks aren't home. Yeah. Or when they fell, they are no longer living there. They're now or they're in rehab or they are in a home now or so, or mm -hmm. they are they they're dead. Mm -hmm. um, so some of those things do occur. Once we get the okay, we send our team over there, which is a lot of fun. So what do you do? Let's say that you successfully recruit somebody, you go to their home on a Tuesday or Thursday for your hour or so session. What do you do in their home? We initially followed, again, CDC. We didn't create anything new. We followed the guidelines for uh, some cognitive tests, very simple things, mobility tests, also CD, all CDC-related. So like, which, which tests? Well, the get-up-and-go, where you time them, getting up out of the chair. Uh, mm -hmm. They have to get out and get themselves off without using their arms. There's a balance test they have to do also. It's interesting. Literally everybody we go to fails. 
Hmm. So the folks that are actually doing the initial screening are doing a 100% great job because nobody has yet to pass. <laughs> they almost always fail the balance test. It's uh. kind of like the drunk driving test, you know, one foot in front of the other. We do make it a little easier for them, but most of the time they can't do that. Cognitive exam, they just got to draw a clock. And then we tell them to, uh, you know, make it 10 after 11 on the clock. And we also uh, do an environmental check. We'll check out their bathrooms, their bedrooms, looking to see any kind of fall hazards, rugs, area rugs, things like that, uh, tubing, oxygen tubing, mm. uh, any electrical cords. Some of these people are hoarders, and obviously mm. that's going to be an issue too. So we make suggestions on things like that. We have also expanded it to their medications. We do a total medication review. And now we're also doing a dementia test as well. Again, CDC related. We asked them if we could have permission to look in the refrigerator, in their cabinets. And we're looking to see if there's an excessive amount of like alcohol. And we have some pretty interesting things that we have found. And it kind of opened my eyes. I didn't realize just how much alcoholism there is in the geriatric population. And the painkillers are mm-hmm. another issue. There's always some red flags to medications that some of it's just it's insane. Yeah. You know, between the benzos, the painkillers, and then on top of that, they take their own stuff, such as, you know, every, everybody seems to be on Benadryl. Mm-hmm. So. Oh, gosh. I, I hear geriatricians just protesting at the idea of the Benadryl, the alcohol, the benzos, and the opioids. That's just, that's a terrible combination. Yeah, it's rampant. And then on top of that, some of these folks are, you know, have, uh, they're on diuretics, and they're just dehydrated, and they're dizzy, and they're falling. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, if they're on blood thinners, that increases Mm -hmm. it. So let's say, we'll put the medications part aside for a second. Let's say they do perform poorly on their get up and go, their balance is poor. What do you do for that? What is the intervention? This is the best part about the system. We work with the Department on Aging, and they have a tremendous amount of resources, which is why the program works. Just to identify it and say, oh, yeah, you know, you Mm -hmm. need to get this and you need to get that wouldn't help. But because where we live, we have such a phenomenal opportunity. So the Department on Aging, what we do is we get a HIPAA release, and we write up a report. And with their permission, we send it on to the Department on Aging in Orange County. About a week later, sometimes two weeks later, they get an an additional follow-up visit from a physical therapist or an occupational therapist who will basically repeat the same thing we did in a more condensed version but much more focused. And then they'll start looking at things like, well, can they get them physical therapy? You know, there is a certain amount of funding where they can get free physical therapy. Do they need uh, bars in their bathrooms in their, and in the house to assist them? That could all be done for free. Mm. There's allegedly, and I use the word allegedly, I hope we don't get in trouble for this, uh, something mm. from the housing department where they would build a ramp. I've been doing this for five years. Nobody has ever built a ramp. I don't even know where they are. They can have all kinds of consulting mm-hmm. coming in for their pharmacological needs. So the department. So they have a pharmacist. Yeah, a they have. They MP have. Or? They have a pharmacist. I think they also will connect if somebody is suffering from depression. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll mm-hmm. they'll connect them with some kind of social worker or some kind of mental health expert. Mm-hmm. So it's really a tremendous help. Otherwise, if if you don't have these things within your county, it probably won't work. 
Right. And I know you were mentioning to me earlier that some patients will call in multiple times a night simply because they're lonely or depressed. And of you course, know, these are the patients we don't see because right. we don't transport them to the emergency department. But obviously, that's a problem, a huge quality of life factor mm-hmm. for that patient, and then also utilizing enormous resources in the EMS field that could potentially be required elsewhere. Yeah, those, of course, are the most challenging. Even with the proper resources, mm-hmm. it takes a tremendous effort to do anything because mm-hmm. you need so many different agency, partner agencies to deal with this. So if it's a patient that suffers from depression and... You know, we could get social services involved, but at any point, the patient can kill the whole thing. Right. And, you know, the only other way we could do it is to get a family member, which is one of the other things we try to do when we do a home visit is to get a family member there because there's much more buy-in from the family member usually than the patient Mm. themselves. Like you mentioned, there's a lot of denial about the scope of the problem, whereas a family member can say, no, really, you have been falling. Or One of the programs that we were trying to do initially was the outreach program where we go to like the churches and the synagogues and do presentations. And I was at one particular place in the northern end of the county, and everybody that showed up was probably an octogenarian. Mm-hmm. And literally everybody there came in with walkers and, and uh, uh, canes and and we, they did what we call furniture surfing. When they walk in, they're grasping onto all the furniture because they're afraid they, they're going to fall. We do this whole presentation on what Orange County offers and how we'd like to come out. And of the 50 or 60 people there, not one of them wanted us to come to the house. They just said, well, I don't really need your help, but I know somebody that yeah. does. So, And literally, literally everybody there could have used our help. Mm-hmm. And that's when I realized if their children were here... It'd be a whole different ball game. Mm. So it sounds like your interventions, looking at pharmacologic interventions or reductions or combinations or alcohol reduction that could help falls, mm-hmm. and then physical changes such as the grab bars, the electrical cords, the throw rugs, the mm-hmm. tubing, etc. Maybe a magical ramp one day. Maybe. Maybe. Utilizing resources that are already in place. Because obviously you can't create a whole PT program, but you can connect them to the people who have already done it, get them PT potentially, get them, you know, case managers or things like that. And not every county is going to have this wealth of resources. We're very fortunate here. But all counties should have a department on aging. Correct. That will have a list of available resources. And for example, here at UNC, we are now becoming a next generation ACO. So even if we didn't have the Department of Aging resources available, there may be resources or case management allies that could be identified within the ACO case management system to help get them the care that they need because they're also invested in keeping the patients functional, independent at mm-hmm. home and not falling and not hospitalized. What have your outcomes been? And I know you're still working on collecting the data, but what have you seen from this program? Our initial numbers were very low for the first couple of years. I mean, we're talking like, you know, 10, 20 people in a year. But in the last year, we've gotten our program down. So we're seeing on average about 25 people a month. From what we're able to tell, and I'll explain that in a minute, we're looking at about a 90% no-repeat call rate. So that means that from, let's say, the 100 people that we go visit in a month, which is not true, we don't really see 100 in a month, but if we did, uh, 90% of these people will not be calling us back. The only thing we don't know is if, which we want to start looking at doing as a tertiary follow-up, 
where we're going to find out, so what exactly have we done? Did these people move away? Mm -hmm. Did they go to a nursing home? Did they pass away? Uh, Or did these things actually work? But right now, the number is actually 90% of the ones that we visit, we don't come back to. The other 10% are usually the folks that are refusing to do the care. Mm. They, they're refusing to let Department on Aging come in or just not following through at all. I can't say it would be a 100% success rate. As a matter of fact, my mother uh, has fallen, and uh, we ran her through the program, and she does a balance class. She's 92 years old. <laughs> uh, the day she came home from her balance class, she fell, so oh, uh, no. <laughs> it's never going to be 100%. Mm-hmm. But so far, it appears to really be working. And these were people who were already at least one, if not multiple, calls for lift assist. So they were high utilizers to begin with. That's correct. So to go from a pattern of high utilization requirements to now 90% of them not calling back within, you followed at least six months to a year. And obviously it'd be interesting to know the control group of people who are eligible but did not have an intervention, what Mm -hmm. their callback rate is, but we can assume it likely follows a continued pattern if not generally escalating as people get worse and worse. So if somebody in another county were to go about setting this up or developing a similar kind of program, what would you recommend? How would they even get started? Well, so first of all, obviously you have to identify, is this something that's a burden on your system? You know, are you going to a lot of lift assist? We have an aging population here, so for us it's perfect. Uh, the other thing is you have to have resources to be able to utilize just to identify them and go visit them probably won't help. So you have to have some kind of referral program. I, I don't like using the word community medicine. That's become the buzzword, and that was really never the point of this thing. It actually, I don't really know what we were going to call it. We were just calling it the Stay Up and Active group. The other thing that becomes important is who is going to be doing these follow-ups for you? If it's your EMS agency that's going to be going in, picking the most experienced paramedic is not necessarily the best choice. They have to have knowledge of the geriatric population. They do have to have knowledge of medication or pharmacology in general. It's very, very important. But it's the soft skills. Do they know how to talk to the mm. to these folks? You're not going to see them on an EMS call when you're following up. This is a totally different atmosphere. There's n- you can't go in with a rush that I have nine appointments and I, or I got to get to my next EMS call. I'm, I'm only on scene ten minutes. We are there for the for a good hour establishing a rapport, a relationship with these folks so that we can kind of find out what the, what's really going on. I guess the key thing is the soft skills. The other thing is you have to develop a way to make appointments because that was one of the biggest pitfalls. The uh, very first phone call that was made, the individual that made the phone call said, you know, we're in Orange County, and I said, we have a new program, and it's designed not to take you out of your house. <laughs> well, the first thing that people on the other end are thinking is they want to take me out of my house. So... <laughs> people have to be able to speak on the phone. Not everybody has the gift to do that. Look at, at society these days. When I was a kid, my grandmother lived with us for a little while. My father, when he was growing up, he had his both grandparents and a great aunt living with him. Mm. And now as we move into the you know 2017 era, you have grandparents that live in other states and the kids don't really have exposure to the geriatric population. And EMS is mostly a young person's field. Their ability to talk to the old folks, they've never really had that. Mm -hmm. So what we do for our paramedic class is we take them to the senior center and they spend the day there. 
and they have they have a series of questions they learn how to interact with the geriatric population and then they come back and report on it and, and it's really very very important that you can make the connection that's a great point any last thoughts you wanted to share when i got into this and i started doing this i didn't realize how serious this problem really is i, I had no idea you know we read about stuff in our books our textbooks we oh yeah old folks fall and they get hurt and they die but they really do mm-hmm. and you really can make a difference and and that's what i think is most exciting about this and as i said i'm aging so i hope everybody learns how to do this <laughs> Well, I congratulate you on your amazing work, you and the other co-founders and co-organizers. I think it's a really tremendous project with a lot of potential to impact our community here. So I applaud you for doing it without any funding or any sort of... It's pretty amazing. uh, (laughs) ...that uh, just out of your own free time. So congratulations on creating this, and I hope that it continues to be successful. Thank you. I just want to mention their names. So the original ones were Spencer Lindgren, obviously Tiffany Schubert, Ken Rosati, who has since picked up the torch and run with it, and then our staff right now, they're Mm -hmm. all doing a great job. So Great. Well, thank you, and thanks to them for all their work. Thank you. See, you have a lot of kids in that picture. (laughs) I do. I have a lot of kids. (laughs)